0: Hello again, and welcome back to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. I'm your host, Roman Tagal, and in today's episode, I'll be talking about the pharma and biotech ecosystem with Kathy Fernando, who's Senior Vice President and Global Head of Pfizer, Ignite and Pfizer Center One. Pretty senior guest for you guys to enjoy today. So here is Kathy. Well, As I mentioned, she is SVP and Global Head of Pfizer Ignite and the Global Head of Pfizer Center One that sits within the Business Innovation Office at Pfizer. Her prior roles at Pfizer include Head of Worldwide Research, Development and Medical Operations and Head of mRNA Scientific Strategy. She also led efforts to develop an ambitious and holistic scientific strategy for mRNA across therapeutic areas, as well as a well-orchestrated plan for execution. Prior to joining Pfizer, she worked at Deloitte, helping address diverse business needs for pharma and biotech companies in the US and EU. Cathy has a PhD in immunology from the University of Pennsylvania. His, her PhD thesis focused on mRNA vaccine and HIV vaccine development. She has a bachelor's degree in biotechnology from the Indian Institute of Technology, the IIT, in Kharagpur, in India. Yep, what a terrific guest Kathy is. Um, thank you for listening as always. Don't forget to, to subscribe and rate wherever you're listening to today's show. Enjoy. Hey, Kathy, welcome to Molecule to Market.
1: Hi, it's so nice to uh, be with you today.
0: Yeah, you too. Thank you for for making the time. You are a very, very busy lady, so I'm so grateful for you being here and sharing your story with our audience. Kathy, I've had the absolute pleasure of meeting you on numerous occasions but for many of our audience they might not know who you are or any of your backstory so please spend the next few minutes just talking us through how you got into the industry and your journey to where you are today at Pfizer
1: yeah no happy to do that and the pleasure is mine I was very excited to uh do this podcast with you here today so by way of background you know I started on the science side I from my undergrad I was um very interested in math and science uh, as a kid. And so getting into engineering seemed like a logical step. And so I did a degree in India uh, in biotechnology and biochemical engineering, which was great. But it made me realize that I was more drawn to the bioscience part rather than the sort of engineering part. And so for my PhD, I decided to focus more on that area and I was also very interested in HIV at the time. So this was, I'm dating myself a little bit, but this was the, around the year 2000. The HIV sort of epidemic was still a challenge, particularly in, in areas such as Africa and Thailand. And it was just a tough knot to crack when you think about the virus and its ability to mutate, its ability to hide, uh, to seal itself. And, uh, you know, it just would have made for a very interesting scientific challenge. And the patient impact is huge. And so I decided to go to the University of Pennsylvania to get a PhD in immunology. And I sort of rotated in HIV labs. And I remember being in a journal club class of a bunch of HIV professors and just being blown away by one professor in particular, his name was Drew Weissman, and he had just come from Tony Fauci's lab, set up his own sort of HIV lab, and he had met Katie Carrico, another pioneer in the mRNA field, and they had realized that mRNA could be a very strong approach for viruses and HIV in particular, and so they started to collaborate together, and it was an early example for me of connecting the dots across innovation sources. So at that time, Katie was an expert and spent you know decades on mRNA, and Drew was an expert in sort of HIV. And the powerful combination that they made was just beautiful to see. And so uh, I was Drew's first uh, grad student in the land and he was just an amazing mentor. I mean, there was nothing he didn't know the answer to, and He also had a very creative approach to science. so He would come up with ideas that were just completely out there, but then tested his hypotheses in a very systematic manner. So I learned a lot from him and greatly enjoyed my time in the lab. And, you know, towards the end of grad school, I became more interested in the intersection of science and business. And I think throughout my career, being one where you know, sometimes I, my, my interest sort of goes to adjacencies or a little bit more of a subset of the initial area. And that was certainly the case at that time. And so I decided to get into management consulting, you know, probably six months before I got in, I had no idea the existence of something called management consulting, but consulting firms, I think, were very good about going to campus and trying to recruit PhD students. And so it seemed really interesting. And, uh, I had no business background. I didn't never, have never done an MBA. And so um, my first few years, and the first year in particular, I think, were a steep learning curves Because, you know, your staff immediately on projects with clients are so paying you a lot of money to come up with recommendations. And it was just um, a different lifestyle. I mean, I never had a calendar in, the, in grad school of meetings and such. And PowerPoint wasn't my specialty. But I learned a lot. And I consulted exclusively for the life sciences industry, which was my sweet spot. I enjoyed it a lot. Switched to Deloitte a few years in. And, you know, probably about, I think about eight years in, I decided that it was time for a change. Consulting had taught me a lot, but I really wanted to work for a single company where I could drive greater and more durable impact. What I mean by that is in consulting, you know, success is sometimes defined by this great final presentation that you give behind. And it's always exciting because at that time, what I needed was a lot of breadth. But, you know, often you're off to the next thing a few days later. But I really wanted to kind of drive implementable solutions, see it through. And so I decided to switch to pharma. At that time, the other reason for switching was personal. I didn't mind the hours in consulting, but the travel was exhausting. And I had just had my second child and so wanted to be home more and see my kids on a daily basis. And so I applied to the only pharma company within commuting distance of my New York City apartment, which is Pfizer. And coincidentally, they had an opening for a director role in R&D strategy, which was, again, my sweet spot. And so the timing was, you know, very fortunate. And so that I ended up sort of getting that role and then generally growing in that area. You know, every uh, couple of years I would just, uh, my manager would leave again, just coincidentally. And so ended up sort of taking on and growing my role in the area of R&D strategy and portfolio management. And up to about a year ago, I, my role at Pfizer was essentially manage the portfolio, the R&D portfolio from discovery up to mid-stage clinical development or proof of concept, and to sort of manage the operations in some sense to think about what should get funded, how we should prioritize things, think about our site strategy. And probably the last year of my role, I took on the additional piece to head scientific planning for mRNA. So when COVID hit and Pfizer kind of jumped in with BioNTech, It was all hands on deck when it came to an mRNA COVID vaccine. But the potential for mRNA is much broader. And so given also my scientific uh, training in the area, I was very excited to think about strategic opportunities for mRNA beyond COVID. And so that was a lot of fun. And then, you know, a year ago, I moved into my current role, which I said this probably for my last couple of roles, but this is definitely my dream job. I was very excited to take this on. And, you know, so I have uh, sort of two pieces in my organization. One is Pfizer Ignite. This is a newly launched innovation partner for biotech companies. And uh, what we do over here is we're focused on a very specific subset of the biotech ecosystem that meet two criteria. Number one, we focus on companies that, meet our high innovation bar. And number two, companies that are within Pfizer's strategic R&D areas of focus. And for these companies, we offer them an end-to-end menu of R&D services, and in exchange, we get a fee. The different flavors of the model, sometimes we co-invest equity in the company, sometimes we get certain soft right. but at the heart is provision of services in the exchange of revenue. And you know, so we run clinical trials, for example, for companies, we do their talk studies. And so We're in some sense kind of working side by side through the journey of R&D, which is unpredictable and challenging. And so by doing this, we form a foundational relationship with companies so that if and when they decide to partner their programs, we're top of mind to be the recipient. So the whole point of Ignite is to serve as a source of innovation for the Pfizer portfolio by forming these foundational relationships. The second part of my organization is Pfizer Center One. And so when I think about the COVID-19 vaccine experience with Pfizer, I'm always blown away by the efforts of the R&D colleagues who came into work when not much was known about the virus and how it was transmitted, how contagious it was. And they came into work every day to advance the vaccine for patients. And I'm also equally impressed with our manufacturing colleagues who did the same. And in record time, we're able to figure out how to manufacture billions in scale over such a short time period with such high quality. And with Pfizer Center 1, this is Pfizer's internal CDMO. And so we have all this high quality manufacturing capacity for patients and Hyder doesn't use it all, right? It's very hard to exactly get right the capacity you need versus the demand and the timing. So the capacity that we don't use for our internal products and pipeline, we sell to customers in the biopharma ecosystem. And so that's been a great pleasure to do as well, to be able to kind of connect the dots between companies that could use that high quality capacity. And provide access to that. So, you know, I know there was a fairly long answer. Uh, sorry about that. But uh, yeah, that's kind of my background in a nutshell. That's great. And we'll come back to
0: Pfizer Ignite and Pfizer Center One. But I wanted just to rewind back to some of your earlier experience and pick up on a couple of things. I bookmarked what you said about, I suppose, your early years in, in terms of working on mRNA vaccines. And you, you, you just really well in your kind of area of of PhD in terms of that, that kind of part of the industry. When you reflect back then on the early work that you were involved with, with some of the, I suppose, opinion leaders that you were working with, did you ever see that technology being used within the time frame that it was? And at the speed that it was, obviously, for the COVID vaccine, it just seemed to be the right place at the right time, but as you you, you talked about the uh, mRNA's having broad potential, as you reflect back then, did you always know it had broad potential, or is that something that's kind of evolved over time?
1: Yeah, and you know, I when you think about how mRNA works, you know, I had a strong belief, like Drew and Katie, that it had broad potential because it's able to sort of trigger the. A broad, uh, broad arms of the immune system, meaning a B cell antibody response, a T cell response, and particularly for viruses, that's very important. You need to be able to kill off viral cells, you know, using you know CD8 killer cells. You need to be able to also prevent them from getting in into cells via antibodies. And so, you know, mRNA in some sense mimics what certain viruses do, where they get into the cell. They get translated, they make protein, and so the kind of immune response that it elicits is quite similar to what a virus would do, and that's why I think it's able to be quite effective. You know, I think there's great promise across areas, particularly viral infectious diseases, for mRNA. But but we have to remember that, you know, it's not, mRNA is going to be, I think, a great help a great advancement for many diseases. But in some cases, you need to unlock more about the biology. So HIV, for example, I don't think it it there's no vaccine currently because mRNA isn't the right approach. It's just that we're still learning about the disease biology, mm-hmm. and uh, that is needed as the last piece to unlock a vaccine for patients. And so uh, a lot of progress is made made. I mean, it, it's in some sense, you know, uh, a chronic condition, and that's very different from decades ago. So, uh, yeah, I, 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 definitely saw the promise in it. Um, but at the t- at time, quite honestly, mRNA vaccines were uh, the forgotten stepchild of vaccine approaches, and uh, DNA vaccines were definitely more involved, more funded. But uh, yeah, I uh, was always a believer. Yeah, uh, good, good, and I'm, I'm glad you you were. And and I suppose if you
0: you know you talked about your time when you joined, you know, right place, right time to be in New York with a business like Pfizer on your doorstep. You know, for many of us who were, you know, stuck at home, wherever we are, we're at the time around the world in 2020, 2021. And we all took delight at hearing that Pfizer had developed a product that could help us get back to, to reality. My assumption were given your experience is you are very much in the thick of the vaccine development and just the whole I suppose the the movement within Pfizer to get that vaccine you know delivered to trials and to patients as quickly as possible how would you describe that period of your life for, you know for many of us like outsiders like myself who you know weren't on the inside what was it like being part of something like that that would have such a profound global effect
1: yeah So i would be very open. I was not at all in the thick of things for the COVID-19 vaccine approach. And I think the company made the right decision to identify a small group of individuals that needed to directly drive vaccine approaches, uh, the vaccine, and they would meet weekly with Albert and just get it done. And it was very intentional not to form a massive team to meet real time, have all the decision makers and get it done. So I think for the COVID vaccine, full codos goes to, you know, people like Katherine Jansen, Michael Dolson, you know, Mike McDermott and his manufacturing team, Albert, you know, they really were in the thick of things. And I saw firsthand their efforts, right? Because in many cases, it was trying to deal with the pressure of having to advance this for patients, knowing what the stake at stake. But then also, for many people, it was a tough personal time, right? Kids were at home. There was uncertainty in people's personal lives. So, you know, full credit sort of goes to them. For me, it was an incredible learning just to observe and watch and learn and be in off that. So I'm very grateful that I was part of the company then. And um, a lot of right, bold decisions were made, for example, the manufacturer at risk and how to cut time, how to set you know, high bars. And I think that really permeated into the culture and that created something permanent in the culture, quite honestly, because it's hard to work on something like that and then say, hey, we're going to take our ambition several notches down, right? And so it is a long-lasting positive impact, I think,
0: on the whole culture. Thank you for being so kind of open and honest, and that's great. I appreciate that, and I suppose the respect that you have for the other people involved in that project. Then I just wanted to pick up and kind of pull out that thread that you mentioned there, Cathy, that, you know, in a, in a sense, has the, the speed of the vaccine kind of almost made things even more difficult in terms of drug development and the expectation level within Pfizer going forward, that it, it almost proved that things could be done much quicker when there was these more agile groups working at speed. I mean, I suppose the overall impact is great and that we can get drugs to patients quicker, but has that? have you seen that cultural impact firsthand where there is a desire to just do things much quicker than maybe, you know, five years ago?
1: Oh, yeah. And I think if you look at our sort of data on clinical trial timelines, they're substantially reduced, not just for COVID, because, you know, I think it's really pushed us To think differently, also more broadly, I think Pfizer, the R&D engine of today, is a very different one from a decade ago. So a decade ago, end-to-end our success rates in the clinic around 2010 were two percent, and I think we were pretty much bottom of the industry. And so it was a lot of wasted investment and an opportunity cost for patients. Fast forward today, we're close to 20 percent, 50 percent higher than peer median. And that's why it's actually a great R&D engine to tap into for the Ignite model, because it's a successful one. And the way we deliver our Ignite program are using the same internal and external capabilities that we use for our Pfizer program. So the time is right for a model like that. But I think COVID really accelerated. It really taught us to, you know, not necessarily think about historically, how long has it taken? Maybe I shave off 10, 20% and call it bold. It's really rethinking what is the shortest time I can do something within, you know, uh, uh, defined constraints. So, for example, the things that are out of our control, right, the time it takes to get regulatory input. And those are things that are harder for us to influence. But there are many other aspects that I think where, you know, you are able to kind of save off time. So I I think the thinking of today is, is quite different and definitely benefited from COVID.
0: You're listening to Molecule to Market where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector the podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space you mentioned that the kind of 2 to 20% in the way that the r&d engine within pfizer has changed without i suppose without you know revealing the secret sauce <laughs> so to speak what what i suppose in that 10 year from 2010 to 2020 what is what has changed like how has that r and d engine changed? has it been is it mainly the this I suppose the way of thinking and the culture like how has that change come about because I'm sure there are lots of people listening that are a different size of business, you know whether it be big pharma or a small business thinking about how you know they get teams to think differently and act differently you know if you could you think you know pinpoint a couple of things that are really move the needle on making that huge difference in kind of success within Pfizer?
1: Yeah, no, it's a great question. And um, we actually published the secret sauce um, of our productivity step change. And, you know, two things I'll call out. One, you're right to kind of think about the cultural change, And so, you know, probably about five or more years ago, we brought in the Nobel laureate Daniel Kahneman, to help us with objectivity because, you know, sometimes when you're working on a program for five, six years, it's your baby and it's hard to be objective because you put in so much time and effort on, about it. But it's important to be objective. And he really sort of did some work re- with us to think about sort of objective decision-making. And those are things that we have um, sort of woven into the core of our R&D fabric and it involves things like, you know, predefining uh, 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 success metrics even before the trial has start, started. We spe- pre-specify what endpoints going, are going to lead to progression or not. We uh, try to design metrics that are more predictive of downstream success. The culture piece is definitely one of it. The second is, uh, we've sharpened our focus substantially. So around 2010, we were in 10 therapeutic areas. And um, over the course of, you know, the decade, we've shrunk that footprint down to five TAs. And in the five therapeutic areas that we deprioritized over a decade period, we had 29 phase two failures and zero success. Wow. And so that was really weighing down our productivity. And You know, those included areas where the science had not broken, like neuroscience. There's no point in keeping on putting stuff in the clinic when the underlying biology is not strong. And it included areas where we probably had not developed critical mass from a capability perspective, because that's hard to do across 10 areas, much easier to do it when you have five and you can go deep. And so those are, I would say, the top two drivers that led to the step change in our productivity. That's great. And I appreciate you you sharing that as well. Cause I think it really,
0: you know, it, it really, I suppose, reinforces the, you know, some of business, you know, business MBA work around, you know, fo- focusing on your core competence and, you know, less is more to an extent and just, you know, really, really having a clear, clear eye on, on what success looks like, which is, is great for sharing. I am going to come on to talk about Pfizer Ignite, which is very exciting in just a moment. Before I do that, I wanted to just ask you almost a bit of a personal question. You you said at the start, obviously, you'd kind of trained in India and then you, you came across to the U.S., uh, to the uh, University of Pennsylvania, I think you said. At that point in time, had you made a call that you wanted to live in the U.S. and, you know, I suppose, build a family and a life for yourself in the U.S. Or had you planned to, to go back to India at some point?
1: Yeah, so I was actually born in New York and I lived here till I was five. My family then, you know, my parents wanted us to be close to cousins and relatives. And so we moved to Sri Lanka uh, and then civil war broke out around 83. So we moved to India. And so I grew up living in Chennai in India, but I spent all my summers in New York. So I knew that I wanted to come here and I knew that I would come here for grad school some something. Absolutely. Well, that makes makes a lot of sense and why it, it kind of
0: suppose emphasizes why New York is so so close to your heart, and and why not? Because it is a, a fabulous city. So let's move on and talk about uh, Pfizer Ignite. And for you know, for context, many of our listeners will know Pfizer Center One. We've had um, leaders from Pfizer Center One actually in, on the podcast before, but Pfizer Ignite sounds like something altogether different. <laughs> with it, to take a, a line from Pfizer Center One. It's something really interesting about the model that you've developed and you talked about before. You know, you launched, I think, a year ago or so, so, and I had the pleasure of seeing you talk uh, at Biotech with a a couple of customers that had uh, collaborated with you on Pfizer Ignite. So can you talk about how the initiative has been received in the market and what kind of early success stories are you able to share around how Pfizer Ignite is partnering with biopharma companies to help them kind of on on the road to success?
1: Yeah. And, you know, first, thank you so much uh, to you and your team for helping us come up with the name. I think it's important that the name sort of encompasses the intent and objective of Pfizer Ignite, which is to spark innovation. And so it's been a tremendous partnership and we're very appreciative. So far, it's gone really well. We've had, uh, um, you know, we launched about a year ago. And at Pfizer, we have goals that are half-year goals. And Albert is known for setting very high, our CEO, for setting very high goals. And every six months, we've been able to meet. And actually, the last half, we exceeded. And so it's going incredibly well. We are able to sign partners that meet those two critical criteria. And we're able to drive impact. We get an enormous amount of sort of follow-on work from partners once they see what they do they sort of expand the uh, services that they're interested in partnering on which is a great sign that the model is working and driving impact um, and we've had tangible examples of uh, you know success we've had one company that came to us with a clinical trial design in oncology and our head clinician for that particular tumor type was able to shave off a full year and a half off of the timeline and so By really tapping into the Pfizer expertise, um, you know, we have people that, for example, have a decade of experience in regulatory for a specific indication that the partner is considering. And so Pfizer companies, they have a secret sauce, right? They're exceptional at, you know, a certain area of innovation. They often don't build end-to-end capabilities at that stage. And so that's where we come in, where we complement what they have and you know, connect those innovation dots, as I would say. Yeah, which I
0: love that phrase. Actually, I um, I noted that down before, which I think is a, a wonderful phrase, connecting the kind of innovation dots. And what what do you find? Is there any do you, have you found any skepticism about the model? You know, you mentioned secret source there. You know that there's almost a sense of mm, I'm not sure I want to share <laughs> everything with with Pfizer, given the size of the organization. How do you deal with? I suppose any nervousness around IP and conflict and that types of things and I know when I was at Bio listening to you on stage it was a question that came up as well and I think it's a, it's an interesting one for you to articulate cuz I had the pleasure of hearing it from you while we were while we were there in Boston.
1: Yeah, no, thank you so much for asking the question. And absolutely. This is a new model, right? It's a new model for the industry and so you know, companies, you know, certain companies have been skeptical. Of, and as you said, one of the commonly asked questions is, you know, IP protection, right? And so, you know, the answer is simple. It's your IP. You know, at the end of the day, the the biotech company is a sponsor. They have decision rights. And, you know, it's not framed in a way that you transfer IP or anything like that. It's more provision of services. And so that we've been able to sort of Mitigate. I think even at the event that you've attended, what I try to do is, um, I'm always obviously going to be uh, an advocate for Ignite, but I have a vested interest in some sense in this success. And so we try to bring biotech partners to different events and have them sort of share their view about what were the concerns, you know, how is that played out. But I think the IP is is uh, has been. Um, Definitely one question. The other is sort of related a little bit, but in terms of rights. And so, you know, in most cases, there's no strings attached, meaning, you know, we perform the services, we get a fee and that's it. You know, sometimes when we co-invest equity, more tied to the equity, there'll be certain rights. And that depends on the nature and the premium of the equity and a variety of features. But um, for the services itself, you know, mostly, I think in all cases so far, it's been no strings attached. So that's not something that companies need to worry about. Yeah, no, I appreciate that, and I think that's useful
0: for our listener, especially if they're in the if they're in a biotech listening to this. And Albert's come up a a few times, and obviously the very kind of high profile CEO of Pfizer. What you know, you've you've dealt and you know been out you know very close quarters working with someone like that. What's he like as a guy, and what's he like to work for? I mean, from the outside, he. He strikes me as being very bold and sets high expectations, but clearly has an ability to get so much out of his team. So I'm, I'm sure lots of us look at him and admire him. But what's it? What's it like when you're on the board table with him, or you know, in a, on a Zoom call with him? Is he does he have a softer side as well, or is he just all business, business, business?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think he summarised the first part very well, which is he is incredibly bold and he set high expectations. But I I, I I love that about him because it's something, you know, especially at this stage in my career, that's what I'm looking for. And if you are the kind of person I think that wants to make an impact for patients, it's an incredibly rewarding place to work because you do get to aim high, right, and uh, uh, really push the limits on things. And so that's been great, but he's also, I think um, – an incredibly personable, uh, person who will, you know, um, be friendly and engage people and get to know people. And so it's been a nice, nice balance. You know, I, I recently attended just a company social event and it was just an epic party because, you know, it's all the people that we work with. And that's one of the, biggest drivers for me staying at the companies. I really like the people I work with. I enjoy working with them. I feel like we're working hard together. We have each other's back and, you know, that's the kind of culture I think uh, uh, is the, there at the organization. I love that. You know, it's, it's quite, what I find really insightful from what you said there
0: is, you know, it doesn't matter what size of business you work for, Kathy, and, you know, many of our listeners, whether they're in, you know, five-person companies or 10,000 or 50,000-person companies, that Culture piece and working with people that you respect and that can get the best out of you is just absolutely fundamental, irrespective of the type of business and size of organisation. So, I think it's great to hear you kind of talk about that as well. And, and just rewinding back, to, I suppose to Ignite in your current role and driving that business forward. I suppose what does what does success look like for Ignite? I, obviously, there is a commercial success to to the to the business model, but does success look like getting ultimately just getting more you know, breakthroughs to patients and getting more medicines to to market? Is that what success looks like, or is it potentially other kind of roots of success metrics that you're you're looking for that you can look back on? You know, maybe in five years time, ten years time, when you get your next dream job, <laughs> wherever that might be, what what will you look back on and say that was that was a successful uh, initiative?
1: Yeah, to me, they, you know, along the way, they're different sort of leading indicators of success, right, for a new new organization such as this. So I think near term, we'll define success by signing incredibly innovative partners and helping them amplify and accelerate their innovation. Moving on, you know, it, it would be medium term, the success will be defined as having innovative programs joining the Pfizer pr- uh, portfolio. So proving out the hypothesis that by working with companies hand side by side, we improve our odds of actually accessing their innovation because they realize what value we can bring to the program. But ultimate success, I would say, is having an approval Come over the finish line for patients, or doing so sooner that wouldn't have happened in the absence of Pfizer Ignite. That is kind of the ultimate success that I anchor to, and so we try to be very intentional about going after top-tier innovation for that reason. Well, that's great, and and you know
0: everything crossed that that happens because it will be great to see and ultimately get more products commercializing on the market to to help people all all over the world. And um, a couple of final questions so we where. We're running short of time. You know, we we've you've t- obviously talked about the nature of the clients and partners that you collaborate with, the innovative partners. And you know, as you you you're well aware, the the biotech industry has um, taken a bit of a hit in the last eighteen months from a, a I suppose a access to capital perspective. And one of the things that we've been seeing on the podcast from interviewing leaders at biotech, so CEOs and COOs who or responsible for moving uh, biotech companies forward is definitely a sense of change in being more open to partnerships and risk sharing. So, is that is that what is that the kind of sentiment you are seeing from biotechs that you know maybe as a consequence of access to capital they're having to think a little bit differently about how they reach their milestone, which you know makes Ignite a really really ideal partner for companies in that particular situation.
1: I think it's a good point that it is sort of a capital constrained environment. And in that sort of situation, having access to capital via equity investment uh, that Ignite can provide is a promising feature. But, you know, quite honestly, I think we may have actually signed more partnerships without concurrent equity by now. And so the appeal, I think, is broader than that and will be more long lasting, even if the capital constraints were to go away. Because I think there's something fundamental about there's something very valuable about, about the expertise and capabilities that are part of the offering that go beyond capital. But in the near term, when there is capital constraint, you know we are happy to sort of offer that for companies that need our high innovation. Well, which is which is a very appetizing offering
0: <laughs> for many for many biotech companies in in this space to kind of look at a different a different model. You, you, I kind of highlighted something you talked about right at the start when when we started speaking, Kathy. You talked about the influence of the people that you had around you early on in your career when you were doing your PhD, and some of the, I suppose, mentors that you had. And I look at someone like you, and I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you before as well. I can see you as a, an inspirational leader within Pfizer, and probably beyond that as well as a as a kind of a, a female leader. Who's doing great things in business in science? How do you now look at yourself? You know, I suppose if you reflect back on the things that you've received from mentors over the air, how do you now support other people that are kind of coming through the ranks and you know working their way through the system to try and you know create a successful career and life for themselves?
1: Yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. In my career, i really benefited from a lot of strong mentors and just people who were very passionate and, you know, good at what they did, like Drew Weissman, like Michael Goldston, I think my former manager, um, like Amir Malik, who is my current manager. And so I really benefited um, from a lot of mentors. Mike McNormand is another great mentor of mine. And so um, you're right. I think now is the time to sort of pay it forward because I have greatly benefited from just leaders sharing their perspective, their feedback, but also being vulnerable about challenges. You learn a lot, I think, from personal stories. I certainly have. And so um, I have started doing that much more at the company. And I think particularly when you're a leader of a diverse background, it becomes important to kind of share your personal personal journey and advocate. So I try to mentor as many people as I can. But then also Pfizer has kind of a culture of, you know, celebrating diversity. And there's, you know, an Asian alliance, there's an LGBTQ plus alliance, there's, um, you know, a a women's group. And so those are good forums, I think, to celebrate as a community, but also help advance that community. And I have certainly started doing that much more in the last couple of years. That's great to hear. And, um, you know, congratulations to
0: Pfizer and the team for you know bringing all those great initiatives together, which I'm sure are you know helping many people in in lots of different ways. And final couple of questions, Cathy, and I promise I'll let you go. Um, you strike me, you know, you know, I know you. You've got a an active family like life as well as an active, very active, uh, professional life. How do you find the balance then, as a as someone that is very very busy at work and? Obviously, very passionate about your family as well, you know. And I know you're a big fan of restaurants and uh, a little birdie says you love playing tennis as well. I hear. How do you keep that balance in a in the kind of busy lifestyle that
1: you have? Yeah, no, it's a good question, and you know, quite honestly, I obsess about balance, and I think I reached uh, a really good point right now. This wasn't the case, I think, even a few years ago. So when the pandemic hit, I would say it was probably at the lowest because, you know, the kids were at home from school. You know, I would be in all-day meetings, you know, and then stop at 6 and then start work. And then it was just, you know, my brain was fried. I stopped sleeping. I was not happy. And I think I'm at my healthiest and most productive self right now. But it, it for me, it it required a lot of sort of, discipline, and it required a lot of trade-offs. So I'm very intentional, for example, about what I eat and what I don't eat. I think when you hit your 40s, your body metabolizes things very differently, and I can't get away with eating what my kids eat. (laughs) Um, uh, I'm very intentional about working out. I work out six days a week, mostly in the morning before the day starts, because once the day starts, it's hard to sneak that in. Um, I do play tennis, and I love it, and you know I also try to do things that kill a couple of birds in one stone. So I play tennis with my husband, and it's a great way for us to spend some time together, but also get a good workout and learn a sport. And I have really structured my work day quite differently, so I don't take more than five hours of meetings a day. I'm very disciplined about that because that actually helps me save time for important work and you know, I'll either delegate or I'll just decline meeting. And I do my most important work at 5 a.m. I'm a morning person. And so when I get up, I have, you know, a couple of hours to really go through complex information or read journal articles and do some really good work. And so all of those things together have been important. And the other thing is taking breaks. So every couple of hours, I take a break. And I used to do it by just watching like a really bad TV show for it's 15 so minutes, but I realized that you know i read an article you know when you're on a screen looking at another screen is actually not a good break so now i'll read a book for 15 minutes and it's like great way to just recharge a little bit or i'll go for a quick walk or just stand on the balcony and so um all of those strategies have really helped me a lot and it has impacted productivity health wellness and you know life is finally more fun because <laughs> i have more free time because of these intentional efforts.
0: I'm, I'm nodding away honestly I feel like we're kindred spirits I know we're similar ages as well but you know very similar you know habits if you like to yourself you know getting up early and I think that's when your brain is at its sharpest so you know I will often say to my team you know try and attack the really cognitively challenging projects early in the morning because your energy levels are at their highest your brain is at it's kind of optimum if you've had a good rest in your Intentionality about time with your kids and what you put into your body and exercising, and uh, even the time you, you mentioned playing tennis with your husband. Your know, habit stacking is something I'm a massive believer in. You know, I often walk or go, on, you know, go, go to run a minute, you go for a run and listen to a podcast that'll add value. And I think there's some terrific learnings in there that you've you've kindly shared for people to take away. And, and ultimately, these are success habits. And you know, for many people listening, this is what it takes often to get you know, further up in the ranks, kind of discipline and sacrifice that Cathy has kindly shared. Cathy, I've absolutely loved having you on on the podcast. And I was was chuckling away when you said, uh, you know, you have five hours of meetings a day because I think we've probably, um, we've been (laughs) maybe a victim of that over the last couple of months as we've been trying to arrange this through your kind of assistant and team because you are so, so busy. But I'm genuinely so grateful that you have made the time and shared, you know, you are very inspirational given the success that you have and continue to have and it goes without saying, but I'll certainly be there to support and be a huge fan to see whatever you do next and uh, congratulations on the success you've had at Pfizer Ignite and, and Pfizer Center One as well.
1: Oh, thank you for the kind words. Really appreciate it. And I really enjoyed your discussion. I hope it's uh, a full uh, to your listeners. So there you have it. That was the
0: lovely Cathy Fernando, who is the Senior Vice President and Global Head of Pfizer Ignite and Pfizer Center One. I hope you enjoyed that episode today as much as you do. I suppose some of the reflections I have of today's interview with Cathy, I think just her drive very early on in her career to to learn as much as possible about mRNA and I suppose HIV vaccine development and being very inspired by people around her. It was was great to hear that. And I suppose part of her journey has been the rise of mRNA and its broad appeal, obviously triggered by what happened during COVID. And it was uh, fascinating to hear Cathy talk about the role of the team at Pfizer working very closely with the CEO Albert in driving uh, that you know, pushing the the vaccine project forward and ultimately bringing a product to market that was able to impact many of us uh, around the world, which was which was really wonderful to hear. You know, again, following that similar thread, I thought Kathy sharing some of the kind of secret sauce of Pfizer's R and D engine in terms of the cultural impact and the changes to the core of the R and D fabric that she talked about was really was really great and the kind of the kind of metric impact that's had on the success at Pfizer in terms of the them focusing on their core competence and just getting a heck of a lot more done and a huge amount more achieved, which was which was fascinating to get that kind of insight into an organization like that. It was good to hear uh, Kathy talking about Pfizer Center One and Pfizer Ignite in particular in terms of its new initiative and how that is you know, able to support biotech companies at different phases in their development to kind of access the resources and know-how within Pfizer on, on several different ways and great to hear some of the success that it's having today, but also what Kathy thinks success will look like in the next few years. And I loved how she talked about connecting the dots of innovation, you can hear that in the way that she talks about helping biotechs and, and innovators, it came kind of through loud and clear. You know, the things that I thought were particularly, you know, interesting from my perspective anyway, was piece at the end around how someone who's achieving so much in her career is able to find balance. And I think there's several lessons that you and I can all take from looking at how someone like Kathy operates and how she gets the most from her professional life, but also manages to keep kind of a healthy balance with respect to her well-being and health and family, which was which was useful for me anyway. And I hope you took something from that as well. I was really excited to get Kathy on the podcast and I hope you've taken a huge amount from today's show. Thanks to my team for pulling together today's episode i could not do this without you guys you guys absolutely rock uh, wherever you're listening to today's podcast please don't forget to give us a rating or share the podcast with a colleague and uh, yeah and i'll hopefully see you guys very soon hi again thanks for tuning in to today's show i really hope you enjoyed the episode for more shows have a look on spotify apple or amazon wherever you like to listen and do make sure that you subscribe so the next episode comes direct to your device automatically and please get in touch via our website molecule to market pod or via linkedin or twitter we love to hear from you so if you have a guest that you want to suggest or someone in your organization that you think would make a great guest on molecules and please let us know. We'll see you very soon. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space.
1: Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, an international content, digital, and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile, and generate leads in life sciences.